We're the Inspire Podcast. We're dedicated to bringing you the latest research in medicine, dentistry, veterinary medicine, and everything in between from both students and academics in a language everyone can understand. We're your hosts, Ellie, Natasha, Sam, and Talima. You can find our website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk where you can access original research and articles from students or find out about how you can get involved. Uh, so because this is our first episode, uh, we thought we should probably introduce ourselves as hosts. So I'll go first. I'm Ellie. I am from the University of Bristol and I'm studying veterinary science. And um, yeah, in my spare time, I really enjoy Craft Magar. I've only been doing it for about a year, so I'm really not very good. Um, but I hope I'm guessing better. So I think I'm better than when I started. Um, but yeah, that's something I enjoy doing. So my name's Sam. I'm a prelim year medical student at Cardiff. It's not my first degree. I did my first degree in psychology at Cambridge. And in my spare time, I like baking bread. So uh, I am Natasha. I am uh, studying, I'm a third year medical student at University of Plymouth. Uh, in my spare time, if I have any, I try to get out to Dartmoor. I think that's probably a good thing. I should probably utilise my time down in Plymouth, down in the southwest. Um, so that's what I like to do. Hi, my name is Fanima Ashraf. I'm a fourth year medical student reading at Cardiff University. And in my spare time, I enjoy watching movies and running routes in and around Cardiff. For our first ever episode, we'll be playing one of a couple games we've made called Research Roulette, which we hope will be more fun than it sounds. So Research Roulette is a game that we've just kind of come up with. We wanted to do something a bit more fun with the traditional journal club. So uh, Research Roulette is based around the idea that we use a random word generator to come up with a random word. And then we have a few days to all go away and find the weirdest, most obscure paper that we can relating to that word. And then we all come back and discuss it. And then the person with the weirdest paper wins. Okay, I have a random word generator. Are you ready? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Here we go. go. I'm a bit nervous. I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure. Okay. Generate random word. Software. That's a. I think that's that works actually. Random. I can think of. No, I, I can. I can think of how we could figure that. You're already thinking yeah. of ideas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My, I'm, the really, cogs in my I'm a bit behind the yeah. <laughs> so, so we have to find the weirdest, most obscure paper that relates to the word software in medicine, dentistry, or veterinary. And we can go across categories, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we've got four <clears throat> days. How long have we got? We've got four days to come up with um, one of these papers. Good luck, everyone. Yeah. May the best yeah, science win. <laughs> So we're back with our papers, um, all to do with the word software. Um, so my paper was, um, I'll link to it in the show notes for the full reference, um, but my paper was a, a article in the British Medical Journal, um, and it's a case series, and it's entitled Motor Neuroprosthesis Implanted with wow. Neurointerventional Surgery Improves Capacity for Activities of Daily Living Tasks in Severe Paralysis, First in Human Experience. 
um, and it's by Thomas Oxley and a lot of other people. Um, and basically, I thought it was really cool. And Sam, you're looking like um, you might have picked the same paper. I did the same thing. <laughs> it's so cool, though. I wonder why we were both... Not the, not the same article, a different article, but same topic. Okay, yeah. okay. That's promising. I was going to say, I wonder why we were both so excited, because it's quite a cool one, I think. Quite a cool topic, anyway. It is, definitely. <laughs> so this was about... Um, they took two people... Um, and basically, in short, they connected their brain to a Windows 10 computer um, through the jugular vein. Um, and the people were able to control the computer and move the cursor and write text messages and things using their thoughts, um, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> oh, my God. That's actually That's... insane. Yeah. Isn't That's... it? It's really cool. That's yeah. It's like that you, yeah. Would, you would think of as a movie plot, you know, like when those kind of like obscure random movies like scientific movies it is isn't it and like you could upload i'm thinking like would you be able to upload and download your brain one day and things like that but i I suppose that's kind of different to making eye movements and things but yeah well you're not like you're not because i get like my article is actually about a very similar thing but i i like in my undergrad we actually covered this topic uh because there's a lot of really cool stuff to do with brain computer interfaces which is the the kind of topic yeah. of um like how these things work but you know um because when this like word came up I, all i could think about was it was only a couple of days after elon musk yes. um announced neuralink mm. like his neuralink project um and you know it just it just made me think like brain computer interface bang that's, like, that's that's what i'm going to talk about yeah exactly but you know that's that's i guess it's not quite the um quite the goal of it but it's definitely something that people are kind of like thinking about that oh maybe maybe that's going to be something in the future that can be done I think it would be really cool and especially if here it's allowing people who are paralyzed to still like regain some level of independence um being able to send text messages and do like online shopping and things like that without necessarily having um help so I'll explain what they did um in very basic terms (laughs) because it's all quite complicated I think um so they basically connected through the jugular vein um, using an endovascular stent electrode array. And then they recorded the like um, brain impulses using electrocorticography and then sent it to a tablet, which then moved the cursor and things. And they did like a, um, they they moved obviously the cursor with their eyes, but then they did a sort of brain mapping um, thing where they got the participants to like, squeeze their hands or um move their arms so they could track the impulses of what it would be in their brain if they could squeeze their hands and then use that electrical impulse to like make them click and things so you could move the cursor with your eyes and then click by squeezing your hand which i thought was really cool um and it was quite successful i think but obviously only they only used two people and it was only for a short amount of time so i don't think they really know fully the long-term effects of it um because this paper was only published in November, I think, 2020. Yeah, so it's quite recent. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really cool. I thought that was really fun. <laughs> so was that only using two participants, was it? Or was it more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was only two participants. So it wasn't like a big experiment or anything. So I guess that's one of the downfalls of it. It's just, was it only working on those two participants? And I guess it does rely on them having a functioning motor cortex and preserved eye movement sorry that'd be like really useful in like locked in syndrome i don't know if you know a lot about it yeah yeah so you actually have voluntary movement of your eyes usually but everything else you've got complete paralysis of so that would actually be really 
like revolutionize people's communications with them there has been uh locked in syndrome is one of like the kind of key areas that that like brain i'm going to just call it bcis from now on but brain computer interfaces have like been okay. used uh, or not used but like thought about using them in um but yeah like you said like lots of the lots of the studies i think it's in part because like the it's quite expensive and quite invasive as well like uh with especially with like ecog like electro corsica grounds they it's like an eeg just on the surface of your brain so it's very invasive obviously um so like it's just like and and the prostheses they have to use for these things really complicated so you know like they can't really be doing mass trials with this kind of stuff because it's just so difficult to do on like like yeah. scale up but but yeah like I, I i had read a review before that kind of talked about the implications for for locked in syndrome um but yeah it's definitely this stuff is really cool like i said like yeah it sounds like you know quite a lot more yeah. about it than me this is quite new for me this um <laughs> this this topic it was something i'd absolutely never heard of before so i'm excited to see what yeah. your article was um because maybe it will yeah. shed a bit oh, more light on mine <laughs> i'm just excited that my psychology degree will be useful now. yeah definitely so, <laughs> exactly so quickly too only one episode in and i finally found a use for my undergrad <laughs> um so ellie your article is mainly talking about the communication of using ECIs, is that right? Or is it also moved? It's is it is because you mentioned something about hand grasping, sorry, your hand Yes. So so I think what they did is they that was just to um sort of track the brain impulses of what your brain would be doing oh, right, to okay. move your hand. Um but I don't think they were actually moving their hand, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so it's more to do with communication, right? Yeah, okay. communication rather than movement. Right. Yeah. Fine. But both of them um, could send text messages and successfully were able to do all of the, complete all of the little tasks that they had to do. I think it was text messages, shopping. Um, yeah, I think it was that kind of thing. And they were all able to do that after this um, and typing. So it's quite, yeah, it's quite, quite exciting. So that was my paper on software which i thought like yeah i thought i was quite cool to link the two software and brains i actually a bit of one-upmanship but my paper actually does talk about moving prostheses that's cool so so using those signals to actually move prostheses there's a 2021 paper and again it's talking about uh neuroprostheses and bcis and, and things like that in particular it's talking about how uh it, it's a it's a kind of case study of a functionally using one of these neuroprostheses to help te tetraplegic patient kind of go around their house and actually be able to do things effectively they had like a um just like visualize it they had like a wheelchair that had a prosthetic hand that was connected to a, a bci that was connected to the brain and it could kind of like grasp and lift things and i, I wanted to find a video of this because i i, I kind of wanted to visualize it for myself but they also did handwriting so they were trying to anyway show that like things will improve like they can make like functional improvements with the use of this neuroprosthetic and they did you know like they they showed that they were with training over the 29 week period i think they were able to improve their grasping ability improve their handwriting speed up everything as well pretty cool that's really, really cool so, oh 
I think one thing to mention with like with, with VCIs is like one of the, the big parts of it, like kind of Ellie was talking about, was um, how like you, because obviously like the brain is giving off electrical impulses and those are really important for communicating with other parts of the body. But like, how do you figure out what is being communicated? Like there have been VCIs for a while that kind of rely on single neuron readings. So a single neuron fires and that can trigger some kind of response from a computer. But that's really easy to decode because this neuron fires and it sends a signal to the computer super yeah. super easy and you can almost think of the brain as almost working in like computer binary like action potentials they don't kind of sort of happen they yeah. either happen yeah. or they don't yeah so it's quite conducive to a <clears throat> to being programmed by a computer but then obviously nothing really in our body relies on a single neuron firing you have to focus on bodies of neurons and you know, we're nowhere near being able to know where all the connections go and what they all mean and stuff like that. So you have to end up decoding signals that are coming from whole areas of the brain. So that's like the main problem in VCIs and, and, and neuroprostheses. So what they did in this study was they used a machine learning algorithm to kind of learn what these signals from the brain meant, basically. So that is kind of like the, the, the cool bit about it really is that they use a computer to decode what the brain is actually saying to that computer and then that computer translates what the brain is saying to it into actual functional ability for the arm so if, this might be a really stupid question obviously i know they come from different parts of the brain but like emotions obviously mm -hmm. like are going to be like up there doing their emotion thing could you theoretically yeah. like move away from motor and like you could like transfer your emotion elect electric impulses to your computer and then that would be like a new form of like ai well i guess you like theoretically like could your windows when it comes to brain, theoretically you can do almost anything do you think but it would work? eventually uh, that's just, like the thing that i find really cool that why i like the brain so much is because like theoretically anything is possible it's like the wild west it's just like everything is everything goes everything is yet to be done but the problem is like it's so complicated it, just figuring out what everything means like why do certain things happen nobody like that that's like kind of the, the big question so so many brain diseases kind of people don't really know what's going on things like alzheimer's Parkinson's. Yeah. you kind of know a bit about it people don't know in, in enough detail to be able to kind of design really effective treatments yet but the brain is just like so complicated i think the only organism that we've managed to like map the full connectome, like what all of their neurons actually do is C. elegans, like the little kind of like wormy thing, you know? Um, and that's like, it is only like a couple, I think a couple thousand neurons, I think, like a couple thousand connections or something like that. So you could build remember. one of those. You could build a fully functioning one of those, theoretically. On paper, well, on, yeah. On, on paper, yeah, on <laughs> yeah. paper. If you grew one from small and then programmed the brain, if you knew what um what was going on, like grew just the cells and then grew, oh, I suppose. I think it, I think that, that board, that's like a borderline where you have to, it's ethical, isn't it? Where is that, yeah. is that actually right to do that? <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you could kind of program a C elegans on a computer, maybe. I think that that's kind of like the, one of the important things to think about when it comes to um lots of stuff to do with the brain and kind of computers and things like that is that i think sometimes people get hung up that we need to know exactly what every single cell in the brain does before we can actually like move other limbs and things like that but at the end of the day like you just have to kind of get like a general 
reading of what is going on you know like so, I mean so I think so much stuff in medicine isn't based around knowing exactly what's going on but kind of knowing 80% of the picture so that you can infer the final 20% and in the same way you don't need to know exactly which neurons are firing in a population in the brain you just have to know in it, what kind of the general pattern is enough to then be able to extrapolate what's going on and infer the rest I think that's kind of like important to, to just kind of think about that you know we, especially with these neuroprosthetics and stuff you don't need to know what all of the cells that control your arm are doing. You just need to know enough information so that you can move your fingers and stuff like that. Actually, they um, in, in the paper that I was reading as well, they cited a paper from 2019. So they managed to hook up a BCI that was connected to a tetraplegic patient. It was a 64 channel, actually an epidural implant, so not into the brain, into the spine. And it allowed them to control a four limb exoskeleton wow which is yeah that's insane like yeah that's extremely extremely cool um there was actually one study that we looked at in um in my degree that very old i think but using a bci to basically they severed a cat's spine actually ellie you might like this because it's kind of (laughs) but they severed the cat's spinal cord and they connected a bci to kind of bridge the neuronal gap between one side of the like one side of the cut and the other side and it managed to restore function to the hind quarters of wow. the cat so that it was able to walk on the treadmill after training yeah we should get a guess on yeah this, actually because so in terms of like if you wanted to get involved in this i'm so assuming cool. like neurology psychology what about orthopedics would that be involved like orthopedic yeah, and then obviously so. like computer science. I think yeah. also though, yeah, of and course. engineering as well. Engineering is really important. Um, med engineering engineers involved, isn't that? That's a branch, isn't it? That's yeah, of course. Yeah, biomedical engineering. Yeah. yeah. What was really cool from your article that the computer was learning about the brain and the brain was learning from the computer as well. I think that's yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, that is actually that's worth mentioning as well. Not only did they show that the computer can kind of, you know decode the messages and produce a functional output but actually they demonstrated that the the bci may have actually contributed to some neuronal um rehabilitation as well one of the issues is that these motor areas that aren't really getting used very much can just kind of die away um, and that can have other kind of like downstream effects as well but they demonstrated that it can actually keep some of those motor areas working even if their actual limbs aren't working so you know, that could have really significant uh, implications on, you know, like clinical applications of this kind of stuff. It's cool, like just thinking about moving your limbs can actually help stimulate the neurons yeah. that would be moving your limbs. So I guess, I don't know whether your paper would be able to enlighten us on whether it would have any implications on phantom syndrome and, you know, the, the sensation that amputees do feel. I know that with, um, it doesn't, they didn't talk about it. But it's one thing, another like really fascinating computer related thing is is the use of virtual reality okay. to treat phantom limb syndrome. So putting people into VR and then them being able to see limbs that are, they, they aren't there, but it kind of helps them build this kind of connection to the limb that they have lost. And, you know, in VR, you can be whatever you want. Yeah. You can be like a squid, you can be a chicken nugget, like whatever you want to be, like you can be what, anything. So it kind of helps like build that, um, it, it helps basically is the answer. Like there, there are studies that have found that it does actually help. So maybe like these kind of things could help with, with that kind of stuff. 
as well. I, I see it seems like it, it would. I, I don't see why it wouldn't. It's like basically the we are is you isn't there like a common thing like you can use like mirrors and things that's what often people use for fatty limb syndrome yeah that as well yeah. yeah it's kind of like tricking your mind into thinking that the limb is still there and then kind of like it's yeah it's it's it's, it's like kind of a it's almost like a separate thing the way that we kind of like yeah that we we learned about it kind of like under the guise of like um delusions and things like that i imagine that there would be kind of uses for and are there any side effects kind of for using well. bci from either one of your articles early or sam that you think from using a bci the side effects mainly were linked to i don't think this study had any but if there were it was le- um related relating to if the device moved and migrated um from the position that it was placed at placed in like okay. the electrode and i think there was some talk of it maybe causing some thrombosis and stenosis but yeah i don't think there were any major side effects in the paper that i looked at i think one of the other risks as well is that a lot of the procedures to put these electrodes in are quite risky so dbs mm-hmm. surgery like deep brain stimulation implanting the electrodes is a risky operation uh even like ecog like putting the, the kind of neck onto the brain can be risky as well and epidural as well so i think that's another um you know difficulty of it as well as that like lots of these procedures are kind of like open brain surgeries so they're not like yeah they're not just like a walk in the park so um how long did it take for these bcis to take effect mine was 92 days um after the um surgery were they able to mm-hmm. they had training um starting from that um but it was at 92 days that they were able to complete the training and be ready to like okay. use it in my one it was they they spent 29 weeks just kind of decoding and and machine learning kind of phase in the lab uh so just kind of like the the bci actually figuring out kind of what's going on and then in july 2020 they were sent home to then obviously continue the, the decoding process as well and kind of measure kind of some of the functional ability of this to help around the house um and then the paper was published in January 2021. So, you know, uh, I guess they were definitely showing benefits at the time of leaving the lab. So that was 29 weeks. Um, but yeah, like, like in my study, it demonstrates improvement all the way through, okay. basically, from beginning to end of trial. How many people were in your trial again? One. Just one. It was just a case study, yeah, single person. It was actually one person that was narrowed. <clears throat> it was uh, selected from a huge, huge pool. The possible participants so a lot of the time with these kind of studies we're seeing the best case scenario because they've chosen the one person out of thousands sometimes who can have this done because they are the perfect what? candidate but what the wider scale implications of this might be is kind of unknown. Do you know around, under which like which factors made him the perfect candidate do you know do they kind of talk about that like were there any kind of specific things that is required for this to work they did, yeah. Um, one of them is, is definitely to do with um, having kind of enough. It's like not too recent from the, the loss of limb or loss of um, loss of function, but also not too long since the loss of function as well. So one of the things is going to be how intact are those parts of the brain yeah. that are going to be controlling okay. this kind of equipment. Um, there are lots of other ones as well to do with risk of like surgery and stuff like that. 
to um, loads and loads of stuff like that. But I think from like the, the neural point of view, it's how much how much functional tissue is left um, in that part of the brain. Well, they're both really interesting articles. Um, right, so my article is actually also discussing about virtual reality, uh, kind of links into what we were discussing a couple of moments ago. Um, so it's titled Virtual Reality in Research and Rehabilitation of Gait and Balance in Parkinson's Disease. Um, it's a study, it's a uh, review article, a systematic review by Canning et al, published in Nature in August 2020. So this study I thought was quite interesting uh, because Parkinson is uh, becoming more and more prevalent in our aging population currently. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Parkinson is a complex progressive multi-system kind of neurodegenerative disorder um, and kind of key uh, kind of hallmark symptoms that are often associated with Parkinson's would be things like bradykinesia, rigidity and uh, like a shuffling gait and various kind of motor symptoms. Um, so that's why virtual reality um, is an up-and-coming I think um, kind of software technology system that could help uh, with gait and balance. Now, obviously, gait and balance, if it's affected in anyone's life, could be quite debilitating and can uh, affect the quality of life quite significantly. We are hoping that virtual reality might become a means to help and help them. However, this review uh, did not unfortunately show um, a great improvement as compared to uh, these kind of normal physiotherapy uh, kind of rehabilitation used currently. However, it did not show any less improvement, if, if you get what I mean. So um, there is still scope for improvement. It has not completely been developed yet. Uh, there is uh, many kind of changes that can be made. One, uh, point, one of the points that this article kind of suggested is that virtual reality actually has a lot of advantages. One of them being um, that it can help with personalized medicine so uh, precision care of medicine it can you can kind of change the type of rehabilitation a person needs to a greater degree um, depending on their clinical presentation their genes lifestyle environment so on and so forth so it moves away from that one size fits all sort of a regime to a more precision based medicine which I would hope and I would assume would lead to better outcomes. Um, the virtual reality environment also uh, allows uh, your environment to be manipulated in ways that may not be possible in real life or may not be safe in the real world. So that again has potential to improve assessment and uh, kind of train your motor systems again, I suppose. Motor cognitive integration is how they described it. Um, another point uh, this article actually um, that I found interesting and I hadn't considered before was that virtual reality can not only be used to re help rehabilitate uh, kind of like the gait and imbalance and uh, with Parkinson's disease, but also assess it. Um, so that was, I thought it was quite interesting. The crux of it is there's still a lot of potential, but at the moment it's not at a point where it's going to give us better results. And also, actually, um, considering the current environment that we're in, uh, COVID and all, um, virtual reality, because it's more teleconference-based where there's not a physio, like there may not be a physiotherapist or clinician with you at that time, it can be more home-based. So someone doesn't need to be with you at all times and can possibly lead to, yeah, again, a more personalized 
uh, a more accessible, I suppose, um, regime, possibly. But again, this article did not cover that. That's kind of my own, that's one of my own thoughts that I had just reviewing um, the current one that you're currently living in. I think the only downside that I have with this sort of research is though, like with virtual reality, mm-hmm. it's going to make um, treatment quite expensive if they do. Like it's going to be quite reliant on maybe private funding or mm-hmm. sponsors. So I guess that would be the only down- the downside of using virtual reality or technology in this. I mean, and also, I suppose, now that you said that, say that kind of those who are technology deprived, yeah, might, it might affect them. And they, again, that might, it make it, may, may make it accessible to that population, which obviously is not fair. Um, so I think there's a lot of stakeholders and a lot of consideration that would need to go into um, that before it. That point, it, that point extends to both Ellie's and um, Sam's articles as well, because they were all using technology to for treatment in mm, that sense yeah. so i guess that's the main downside with using technology that there's going to require a, a high amount of finance to start it off yeah would you um is this was this a home home-based virtual reality um sort of program or was it you sort of go into the hospital and seek the treatment there like you would with physiotherapy so yeah actually so they kind of compared all sorts of um kind of virtual reality uh, systems out there at the moment so um there's non-immersive and immersive um so immersive i think there was because this was a systematic review that considered i think around 32 rcts and um so they're comparing various techniques and various types of uh, virtual reality so some were uh used at home um some were more for kind of like a game a gaming kind of system where it's a screen so it's non-immersive but you kind of react to what's happening on the screen in front of you okay. um, yeah <laughs> i was also wondering whether um they said that it wasn't they, they didn't have significant differences to um to physiotherapy mm-hmm. but um i'm wondering that whether maybe the one thing that may have contributed to the positive effects of the virtual reality may have been the physical aspects of it itself. Um, so, you know, virtual reality itself, especially the, the immersive ones are quite physical. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's almost like the virtual reality is a form of physical therapy. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether whether they maybe, did they look at um, kind of sedentary virtual reality and see whether that had any impact? No, 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 no. They they did physical. Sorry, I just yeah. yeah. No, they did because that's what. So yeah, what I'm thinking is that potentially, if 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 it if it is kind of sedentary, um, maybe there's some kind of like stimulatory uh benefit for the cognitive symptoms of Parkinson's. But in terms of the motor, the motor aspects of it, um, I'm wondering whether you know functionally that they're they're quite similar in a way. Maybe VR is is just a better way to motivate people to actually partake. That, in the physical therapy yeah no i i definitely i definitely see your point there um yeah so it was quite so it was um it was quite a physical it was not just home-based sedentary it was very much um i don't know there's a game environment and you have to walk um take certain parts etc and so and so so on and so forth and it did kind of expect the individual so the person with Parkinson's disease to move to in order to play that game which was kind of like the, that that's the immersive side and then if it was the non-immersive um then you were using things like balance boards um to move around uh 
and that's again then uh helping you improve your balance in a sense so so it was very much a physical therapy rather than a just sedentary sitting at home sitting on a couch kind it of kind thing. of sounds like this um article was sort of exploring technology replacing humans in a sense in terms of the physiotherapists <clears throat> yeah it's quite interesting robots are taking over our jobs yeah <laughs> yeah no definitely i mean i think it's going to i mean one thing i would say is that you would require i think certain um interventions to be supervised because this person especially at the starting stages you would i presume you'd require someone to look out look out for you in case you harm yourself because if you are doing things like climbing steps in virtual reality when you're not doing so in physical in in the real world there is potential for faults and harming yourself and supervision will still be required. So, I mean, I suppose that does contradict the point of kind of providing rehabilitation from like from our homes. So. I also wonder about the kind of the, the pragmatism of it in the sense that um, it may be quite difficult to set up yeah. the virtual reality yeah. equipment. Definitely, like they that. can be difficult. You know, yeah, but for people with Parkinson's who are older, uh, they may just struggle to set it up and especially in kind of more progressed mm-hmm. states of Parkinson's where you kind of have you have dementia creeping in and things yeah. like that and severe cognitive impairment yeah. um, at that point it may be very difficult to to kind of get the the complicated system putting it on just kind of basic things like that may become very difficult uh, so I, I think I, I see that it could it could be quite limited maybe for the kind of earlier stages more functional stages it could be yeah. beneficial and kind of as well like Halima said that um you know it could be one barrier to entry might be cost but actually from a kind of healthcare system perspective um the man hours of a physiotherapist uh will probably end up costing far more than having just a virtual reality headset which even at the moment they don't cost that much if you think of it in terms of work hours so mm-hmm. it is i think it is like an interesting sort of like robots taking our I jobs it, kind of it's like thing as well. at, at this point in time with the evidence that we've got so far it'd be hard to justify integrating that system at this point in time yeah. until there's evidence mm-hmm. that vr was <clears throat> greater than normal physical therapy yeah. therapists definitely but i think definitely. that's an interesting area of research though i think it's still interesting as well that they 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 did conclude that it wasn't any it wasn't significantly different so even at the kind of relatively primitive stage that we're at now it's not showing significant differences so it does kind of have quite imp- interesting implications for the future yeah. i feel yeah i also would have assumed that it would have made a difference i don't know why i just think that there's um like there's so many advances in technology and how they can be used for medicine i just kind of assumed it would make a difference like it's more motivating i don't know vr and games and things rather than just sitting in a room with a physiotherapist so it's interesting that it wasn't mm. yeah like, i, I, I was really expecting you to say oh and it was so much better and this <clears> is like a new advancement yeah. and yeah I, that's what i expected no that's i think i when i read the title of this article that is probably what i expected too because you just you just assume that's yeah. going to be better but i think it's really important to know about articles that show maybe something that you didn't expect that show the kind of the negatives as well because not everything can you know it just it just highlights that maybe more consideration needs to be given before it can be developed or maybe it needs to be scrapped altogether maybe so you don't know which way it's going to go just something to keep an eye on i suppose nothing coming <laughs> 
I think there's a name. Isn't there a name for that when you you assume something new is going to be better? Like maybe novelty bias or something like novelty that. Novelty bias. It's just the assumption that just because something is new, you assume it will be an improvement on the previous iteration. The novelty effect or the novelty bias yeah, refers so. to the mere appearance that a new treatment is better than is better than. Oh wow, that's such a great, great pattern, yeah. guys. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> so when I was re- researching my article, I found that there was a quite a, um, a big pattern in like researching the words software and medicine. And it focused a lot on like radiology and nuclear medicine. Um, so my article, a bit different to all of yours, is actually focusing on diagnostic of conditions rather than treatment. So my article is artificial intelligence to codify lung CTs in COVID-19 patients. So um, this is a short communication, which is basically like a structured report from an Italian um, medical team in May 2020. Um, so obviously to give some context, we're all going through the pandemic, (laughs) um, and it's caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and it can be diagnosed based upon patient history and clinical signs, but definitively it's diagnosed through positive viral PCRs, chest x-rays, and high-resolution CTs, HRCTs, which is what I'll refer to them. So basically, this team recognised that current AI systems that use are used to drive CTEs were unable to differentiate between the radiological findings of COVID patients and other respiratory states, particularly ones that affected like the lung parenchyma, so interstitial related conditions. Um, so, so basically, both CTEs would present with ground glass appearances in the lungs. Um, however, there is like slight variations in their um, presentations in the um, CTs um, which a trained radiologist is now you know able to differentiate between them but not necessarily the program itself so um, it was quite interesting they inferred that perhaps the lack of differentiation could have led to false positive findings of CT related diagnosis of COVID which I thought was quite interesting especially because they had like they were one of the first countries after China to be affected by COVID. But then after thinking about it, it can be negated by positive viral PCRs, which most patients were going to get anyway. So I kind of found that point invalid. So basically, they proposed a new AI system called the Thoracic VCAR, which is basically programmed for CTs to be able to recognise a correct COVID-19 lung finding versus all other respiratory findings. So... um, the really cool thing about this VCR system, it's designed to quantify the percentage of lung disease, um, sorry, the percentage of lung tissue which has been affected um, compared to the normal healthy lung parenchyma. And it's able to do this through a color, colorimetric map in the post-processing phase. I don't exactly know what that means, <laughs> but it's just a part, one of the stages in the program itself. So um, the positives by objectively quantifying the measurement of lung involvement um the team thinks that the ai can identify the severity of the the covid which is actually really good rather than basing it purely on clinical uh, uh, like subjectivity and then they even like further suggested that if they use this program long enough they would be able to take cts at different intervals throughout the patient's treatment to see whether they were we could like firstly recognize if they were progressing or regressing in terms of their disease state and then if 
they were um, reacting and responding well to specific um, intervention and medication that could be trialed. So I thought that was really interesting because that has a lot of scope for other sort of specialties to then use as well, especially ITU. Um, so then using all this information, this, um, the CT software can then make a concise and more accurate report. So on the percentage and volume of tissue affected um, by COVID and then um, perhaps the severity um, for the clinician to use. So I guess like one of the things that I was thinking was why make a new system when we've already got like ones that are working in place? Why can't we just update it? Like, you know, we would for an iPhone or something. Um, and it's because with AI, one of the major downfalls is that it's essentially AI is like a deep learning software, which basically my understanding is that it kind of mimics the way a brain thinks. Okay. And so they're really poor at being interpreted and then um, working out after it's been programmed what determining factors and imaging features were already in the system. So we wouldn't be able to then look at the system and say, oh, they will say looking at these features in the, the um, chest X-ray or CT that was pointing it towards COVID instead of like an interstitial pneumonia, for instance. We wouldn't be able to say what's causing that. So you'd have to actually make a new program looking specifically at the things that would differentiate the COVID findings versus the other respiratory conditions. Um, how? Like, I'm sorry. I don't, like, how How do you how do, how do you do that? I don't know. Because surely there's some level of confusion. Like, yeah, because have they, how, what has their kind of results been once they used it? So, so they've used it and they've had like a dramatic increase they didn't have statistics okay. with it it was just a report so it was, but based on what they had been using at the time of the outbreak in Italy like they identified it straight like within the first couple of mm. weeks from my understanding and then they wanted mm. to they basically got their engineers and their programmers to essentially work with the radiologists saying how what's the difference between this COVID like um, CT versus um, like a lung, I don't know, an asthma or a pneumonia, and what are the specific findings that make this ground ground glass appearance in the lungs different from, you know, um, the other lung conditions? And I think from that they were able to use radiology expertise to then inform the program that they were doing. It's way above my sort of understanding. <laughs> very but I thought it was, it was yeah. quite interesting because it was quite relevant. And so I think their plan was to, that they want, by having this report, they wanted to then ensure that across Italy, at least anyway, that they were using this system. Now, I hope now, now in 2021, that in the UK, we have a system that's able to recognise COVID-19 lung mm -hmm. <laughs> findings just as well as they found in Italy. So I just thought it was quite interesting, that's all. In general, with like AI, when when we start using systems like that is to kind of diagnose i suppose you know a condition are we how can we kind of rely on that system is it because is it is it encompassing like multiple clinicians because it is it, like you said it is a brain right it's a brain that's downloaded yeah i think i think they'd have to use like multiple trials and, and with anything you, you do go through yeah. trial phases don't you 
And actually, I think that what they probably would have done is they would have used um, CTs or like got patients where they already know the diagnosis and then see if the system was able to pick it up. That's how I would have thought that they could do it. And then, you know, keep on doing that and then make, you know, if they are able to make slight adjustments in the programming themselves mm. because they created it. Um, but I'm not too sure otherwise. <laughs> it's, it, I, I do find like that kind of stuff really interesting because I think they've done a similar thing with uh, the first thing they did with, I think, with bre uh, was breast cancer in identifying like the difference between malignant, like malignancies in breast tissue versus just, uh, you know, other um, other masses. But I think, yeah, we could I could get into like how it works, but I think it would be like a really interesting topic maybe for like another like a later episode is kind of this kind of stuff because especially there's like a whole field of psychology that um kind of like i think machine learning kind of came out of it like computer computational psychology but then also machine learning has contributed a lot to it it's kind of about like <clears throat> provide the system with the stimulus and then you kind of teach the system to understand what are kind of the prototype features yeah. of that stimulus so it'll kind of flick through things and be like, yeah, this is part of the group. That's not part of the group. But then over time, it ends up learning its own features. So the radiologist starts having to tell it, right, this is this is what you're looking for. This is not what you're looking for. But eventually the computer can determine, actually determine features that the radiologist themselves can't spot either. Yeah. So it's, it's really cool. I think that's really, really, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Get an episode because on that eventually because it's so cool. And try to I think it's also like fun. really complex but, as well. That's why they've they're creating this new specialty is emerging in terms of like biotechnology do you know what I mean it's becoming more prevalent yeah in our healthcare system yeah I think it has it has so much potential to also like on the one hand there's so much potential to make more like get more accurate diagnoses and I know that with you know, especially with like cancer um inaccurate diagnoses and misdiagnosis yeah. is such a huge well problem. yeah one of the things that um, I was looking up and it's always been an interest of mine is like the histological mm -hmm. pen I don't know if you've heard of those. I know Grey's Anatomy tried to take it, <laughs> take credit for it, but it's um, of the idea that if you buy like this piece of technology yeah. pressing onto a piece of tissue, there and then you should be able to get a sample and find a histological finding, whether it's benign or malignant, like almost instantly, which is yeah. kind of insane. And with with things like yeah. that, isn't aren't they currently using technology that kind of maps out? your tumor like they scan it immediately and maps it out for you in 3d form as you're doing surgery things like that like with cancer and tumors like that it's an, it's insane how yeah. good the technology has gotten and the potential it has i think it's really good but also it like there's still a lot that it, mm -hmm. it needs to do like we need this technology like there's i think there's often like a debate about is it gonna is it gonna cost jobs and things like that but i think there's there's a lot of things and again like pulling it back to to um to to cancer like misdiagnosis is so it's such a problem that you know like we we kind of need the technology because it goes beyond what we're kind of currently capable of ourselves that's one of the things i find i, I think is really cool about um not just like medical software but kind of just computer machine learning and stuff like that in general is it doesn't just kind of like help us with these medical problems but in some cases i think it almost like helps us understand the way that we work better like with machine learning under like part of i think what has helped inform kind of ideas of the way that like it's basically trying to mimic what a brain does is that seeing it 
presented before us makes us then look back at ourselves and think well actually maybe that's how our brains work as well so it's quite cool how it kind of mimics us but then it actually ends up teaching us about ourselves at the same time it's very cool in that in that respect as well i guess it's similar to also the the prosthetic limbs that we were talking about earlier too that understanding how those limbs can work can also like help us understand how like our own connections mm -hmm. like our healthy limbs to our brains can work as well so i think it's just like I think a, interestingly it also shows your limitations as well as yeah. in do you think there'll be a point <clears throat> i'm not saying that you guys have an answer for this but you think there'll be a point where technology won't ex we won't be able to mimic human life anymore as in technology will stop or do you think there's a point at which technology can fully mimic a human connection like i do you know what i mean like uh, is it able to replicate yeah. a, like human like anatomy physiology function i think it's it's like yeah it's it's such like a big it's one of those things that like i guess theoretically could we would we want to yeah, I think yeah. that's also do we want to do that Ooh. someone would yeah yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, even if, if we don't want to, somebody else will. Like, I think that doesn't necessarily no. make it right. No, no, it doesn't. Well, that's not <laughs> well, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm saying, but do we want to? <laughs> I, I think, like in general, like it's more about. Uh, I mean, I know you raise a point about like you know it's replacing us, but is it more about kind of using technology in a way to work with us, like work with each other, like rather than. Yeah, it's it's a very fine, fine line. line. You don't you don't want to cross it. And I suppose mm. yeah, that I suppose the scary point is there will be people cross. It. You can't control anyone. I suppose you can't control. It'll become an I robot robot sort of state. I'm imagining yeah. like Avengers yeah, exactly. in real life. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I I have a feeling that that won't come from a. No. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. I, I, I reckon this is a general conversation we're having. Not not. <laughs> But I think, I think, but I think that it does pose the question as like, where do we stop exploring human like technology in medicine? Is there a point at which we stop? I guess that's kind of a theme that we can think of from all of our all of the things that we've looked at is kind of like, can we see this? Going back to the prosthetic limbs, um, at what point are you giving people prosthetic limbs that allow them to regain function? But then there's a point beyond that where you're. You know, if we get in the future the ability to to give people prosthetics that actually mm -hmm. expand upon the pre-existing function True. of people's own hands, like what if we can create, yeah. um, you know, hands that yeah. have even finer motor control? Yeah, we'd have like a whole different category for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Imagine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. As if doping at the moment well, isn't bad. If you, well, enough, you, you know, have... talking about function and prosthetics, Oscar Pistorius. Uh, so, you know, there was obviously controversy with Oscar Pistorius um, competing in the Olympics instead of like the Paralympics. So I think it's just an, an interesting topic of conversation. Because we mentioned at the beginning, like, remember, we talked about Neuralink. Like, that was how we like started off yeah. the episode. It's nice. What's it in storytelling when you have like a circle and like have a circle? But like um, we talked about Neuralink at the beginning and kind of how, you know, Elon Musk's uh, ideas of like these cognitive enhancements mm -hmm. that you can put on a chip and then plug into your brain. Yeah. Um, you know, probably very, very far away yet. Um, but, you know, that could be the yeah. that could be the future, really. So it's one of those things where like how far should we go? It is, it's a question that, you know, 
we can answer and we can think of from an ethical point of view and everything but at the end of the day if we don't somebody else is probably going to do it so whether necessarily we want it to or not um it's, it, it could end up happening anyway so i think it is interesting to think about at what point does it cross over from being um like helpful to harmful not helpful to harmful ethics like, unethical uh, like uh ethics bad <laughs> No, not no. like a, okay. like going from like a treat like oh, restoring as into like explorative. To... Do you mean like going from having a purpose in treatment to beyond treatment scope and being explorative in human? Like, is it more like unfair advantage? Or yeah, like... exactly. Like, like at what point is it going from um, a treatment that's restoring healthy function to something that actually improves function it. beyond what was yeah. there before? Exactly. And then at what point it's are like people kind of using that power exploit that and is that wrong or right so we're coming to the conclusion of our first of our very first episode guys which has uh been really fun um it's been really really interesting hearing about the kind of specific implications that soft adva- advancements can have um and it has really actually i think towards the end brought us towards the general discussing the general topic of the scope of medical advancements and the ethical line between treatment and person, personal enhancement. Um, we have really, so I think, I think we can, but we can all agree that we've really enjoyed this and we hope you guys have enjoyed it too. We'd love to hear your opinions on these articles. If you want to get in touch, please email us at inspirejournalpodcast at gmail.com. We've been Ellie, Sam, Natasha and Halima bringing you our first episode of the Inspire podcast. If you want to hear more from us, please like, follow, subscribe and leave us a review. We're really passionate about research and we'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please do share it on social media and tell all your friends. The Inspire podcast is brought to you by the Inspire Student Journal. To find out more, please visit our website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk. See you next time. We're students and we're all still learning, so we appreciate any comments, feedback or error corrections in relation to the topics discussed. All research presented is correct at the time of recording. Any medical information provided does not constitute official medical advice. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be experiencing. Views expressed in the Inspired Journal podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Inspired Student Journal or of the institutions we are attached to.